Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Citizen Bitcoin Podcast. We are dedicated to being sovereign citizens of Bitcoin. We're here sharing our journey learning Bitcoin, hoping it makes yours a bit easier. I'm Brady. All right, Bitcoiners, get hyped. I've got Pierre Rochard himself on the pod tonight. Y'all are in for a treat. A quick shill before we get into it. Check out citizenbitcoin.shop for some cool emoji-based Bitcoin-themed stickers. They look great on top of your nodes. You can pay in Lightning or on-chain with OpenNode. Of course, you can pay by a dirty fiat with Stripe. Check them out. I think you guys are going to like them. All proceeds for the Lightning Torch sticker go to BTC Venezuela at BTC Venon on Twitter. Uh, they're doing important work on the front lines, spreading Bitcoin awareness and adoption where it matters the very most right now. And stay tuned to this feed next week. I'll be talking with Marty Bent. Got a couple other great interviews lined up after that. Uh, Brandon Quidham of the Bitcoin Mycelium Analogy. Uh, really excited to talk to him about his work. And we've got Dan Held lined up as well. So stay tuned to the Citizen Bitcoin pod, and we're going to get you some awesome content over the next few weeks. All right, on to the show. I think basically all the Bitcoiners who listen to this pod will know who Pierre Rochard is, a co-founder of the Satoshi Nakamoto Institute, the website of which all Bitcoiners should read from beginning to end the co-host of The Noted Podcast, one of the best Bitcoin pods out there, and more recently, founder of Lightning Power Users and creator of The Node Launcher. In this discussion, Pierre and I get into all things Lightning. Hope you all enjoy it. I sure did. Hey, Pierre, how are you doing? Good. How are you? Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm doing great, man. I'm really excited about this. Uh, I just wanted to start by saying thank you uh, for helping me uh understand bitcoin sure um, thing. yeah i mean <laughs> <laughs> you've been doing it for a while um before i so i have this funny little uh twitter thread that i want to share with everyone before we start because i think it's a kind of a uh indi- like it's it illustrates um i think a, a lot of people who are new to bitcoin are going to kind of identify with this when you get thrown into the rabbit hole and all the noise on Twitter and Reddit and all over the internet, trying to figure out what's going on and make sense of it. Um, there are a lot of Bitcoiners such as yourself that are kind enough to donate their time to teaching the new, uh, the noobs and each on each wave of adoption. And so I'm kind of now at the point a couple of years later where I'm trying to give back to uh, you and others who did that for me. So before I actually created the Citizen Bitcoin Twitter account and podcast. And I moved all my Bitcoin Twitter activity over over to that. Uh, I bothered you a lot for my personal Twitter account, and you almost always answered uh, my noobish questions uh, just like very directly and with good information. And and I, and I learned a ton. You you always had a link to like some something on the Satoshi Nakamoto Institute website, for instance, and and it always seemed to answer my questions. So. I feel compelled to share this particular thread, um, and it's a bit embarrassing for me, but it's, it's from November uh, 6th, 2017. So this is like nine or 10 days before the Bcash hard fork. And uh, I had asked, you know, why you were, you know, 
basically a small blocker while you were against Segwit2x. And um, you you posted a link to something on Michael Goldstein's uh, blog, bitstein.org. And it was a conversation between you and, uh, or I guess kind of a debate or discussion between you and Gavin Andreessen about the block size limit from like early 2015. So this goes way back. And the thread, the thread says, all right, so you, you post that, that link. And I was like, thank you. That helps me confirm my hypothesis. So Bitcoin should be the reserve currency and some altcoin should be cash, like Bitcoin cash or Litecoin, <laughs> right? Which is just ridiculous takeaway from that. Well, uh, that's, yeah, that's a fair. No, but that's a, that's a, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, might okay. be straw manning my position, but it's a, after reading that piece, like, I do say that you know uh, it, we'll we'll know the transaction fees are too high if we start seeing uh, an altcoin gain traction. So substitution, yeah, yeah, that's true. But then but, you replied, yeah. you said, "Don't uh, don't confuse Bitcoin the money and Bitcoin the payments network. Cash will be Bitcoin denominated layers like Lightning." Right. And then yeah. this is this is the embarrassing part. I reply, "Okay, Lightning Network is a Blockstream project, right? Blockstream is a private company. Is Lightning going to be open source in Bitcoin Core?" And you reply, I can't tell if you're trolling me or uh, or you just get all your information from r slash BTC. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I was definitely reading RBTC then too because I was trying I was trying to figure out what was going to happen with this fork. And yeah, I was just too susceptible to the FUD back then. Um, just didn't have enough information and enough context. Um, but I just thought that was really funny. And and uh, you know, I appreciate you being a sport and and you know. Um, educating about Bitcoin and saying things really important. So, like I said, trying to do my thing to uh, help out on that front with this next wave that's coming up. Awesome. Yeah. So, okay. So, with that, um, I want to talk about Lightning with you today. Um, I thought we could kind of dive in to a little history of of Lightning and just kind of set the scene. Um, the Lightning Network white paper which was written by Joseph Poon and Taj Dreja, uh, dropped on January 14th, 2016. So a week or so after Bitcoin's seventh birthday and a little over three years ago now. Um, so I, do you remember that? And like, what were your first impressions when you read the proposal? Uh, yeah, I do remember that. Um, and my first impression was, why do we need this? Because the Bitcoin <laughs> network functions rather well as a payment system. So... This seems superfluous. Now, to give you some context, too, I was working at BitPay in Atlanta at the time. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it just, when I, I didn't, I didn't actually read the, uh, the paper. What I absorbed was from conversations with other employees at BitPay. And the impression I was getting, without me having done my own research at all, which I definitely should have, uh, I, I was getting the impression that this would be like, nice for high frequency micropayments, you know, sure. like weird stuff like that. But if you're just like buying your coffee, you know, you can just go on chain and you don't need to use this like weird system. It's a weird network. Right. Um, and that like, basically I also had it confused with the existing uh, payment channels that were available like around that time, which was basically unidirectional and right. uh, not super useful. So I uh, did not do my due diligence. And if I had, I'd like to think that I would have been more bullish on it uh, than I was. Um, but in any case, 
it came back on my radar uh, with both the soft forks that were occurring to accommodate Lightning, uh, including uh, SegWit, um, but also due to the scaling debate. Now, before Lightning really had me persuaded, I had it in mind that uh, there would indeed be layer two entities uh, that is, you know, uh, unfortunately centralized financial institutions that are processing payments mm -hmm. and then settling things on uh, the Bitcoin network, uh, kind of like under the gold standard, uh, right. which I say unfortunately because what developed is fractional reserve banking. But right. there are arguments for why that would not develop uh, with Bitcoin, uh, e even in that scenario, in that the cost of final settlement is so low that uh, it would be very easy to also open a bank and go in and compete because there's open access to the backbone of the financial system. Uh, and it, you know, it's anyone with an internet connection can, can do a Bitcoin transaction. They don't necessarily have to get approved by Federal Reserve or whatever. Right. Uh, in any case, um, so once it clicked in my head, I think that, uh, so the first thing that got my attention really on Lightning was when I went on Mainnet and Satoshi's place uh, got traction. Um, yeah. And, and also seeing uh, demo videos from Jack Mahler's about Zap. And yeah, so that was like kind of first quarter 2018, like basically a year ago. Uh, yeah, and and then also um, like Alex Bosworth's tweets where I was like, I don't know what this guy is talking about, but <laughs> I think that I think there's something there because he's very pro Bitcoin and he's like doing highly experimental stuff with this Lightning Network that seems to be finally maturing well enough that you know people are using it on mainnet. He was um, all over it. So uh, then the uh, Chain Code Labs sponsored a lightning residency and I applied to it uh, because the whole point of the residency was that you would learn more about the lightning network. And I was curious about learning more about the lightning network. Um, and so uh, it was a week long program here in New York. And basically he, they had some of the best lightning protocol developers and application developers come and speak about uh, their perspectives on lightning and how it currently functions, how, uh, it will function in the future if we put in the hard engineering effort to uh, <laughs> to to get it to function that way. Um, and I I left that residency uh, very excited about Lightning because it became clear to me that this was going to be not only uh, crucial for Bitcoin's uh, underlying security slash transaction finality. Uh, with high transaction fees, um, and also help us avoid this issue of fractional reserve banks, or just generally having to rely on a trusted third party and all of the nonsense that comes out of that. Um, but especially, I kind of, my hobby horse for my entire life has been this issue of macroeconomic cycles. And I subscribe to kind of the Rothbardian Austrian business cycle theory of uh, fractional reserve banking causes. Uh, business cycles, uh, and then central banking on top of that makes things even worse. Um, and okay. so to me, having the entire payment system be 100% reserve, uh, thanks to Lightning, uh, sounds extremely appealing. 
and I think would would be fantastic for the economy. Right. So that full reserve is a product of the the one to one peg between like Bitcoin mains Bitcoin's main chain and then Bitcoin on the Lightning Network because it's all pegged. Like, yeah, I mean, 100%. I could I could definitely start uh, arguing about semantics and quibbling over which words we use. Right. Uh, because to me, pegged is not the appropriate term for what how the system functions. Um, because I would I would actually the metaphor I use is that if we have a legal system and you every time you relied on a contract, you needed to go to the courthouse just as a formality. Uh, that just would not be a scalable legal system. Sure. Uh, and uh, the alternative is that you go to the courthouse with your contract when there's a dispute, um, not when there's no dispute. So that's kind of what how Lightning functions, is that it uses the, the, the main chain as a Supreme Court uh, that uses smart contracts um, to determine the outcome of a channel that is in dispute and uh, for its uh, final balance. Now, uh, the so f f from that perspective, really what's going on is that valid Bitcoin transactions are being held off chain by participants. And these valid Bitcoin transactions uh, could be settled on chain at any point. So um, I, I do consider it uh, something beyond pegged because they are fundamentally contracts that are cryptographically enforceable on the Bitcoin network and entirely Bitcoin denominated and really no different than any other uh, contract that's being processed by the uh, Bitcoin payment system. Yeah, the only difference being that they're unsettled, right? They're just not broadcasted. Oh, yeah, yeah. But I mean, uh, unsettled, uh, any kind of unsettled transaction, right? So like you yeah. you could just send me a, a normal signed transaction that was not broadcasted and then right. I could sit on it. Um, and so it's okay. like, well, at that point, uh, it's really uh, a matter of time before, before the coins are transferred. Um, Whereas in a pegged system, generally what you have are two different assets that have a fixed exchange rate. Okay. Um, so 16 apples for three oranges. And then we try to manage the supply and demand of both so that that peg holds so that there's... Of course, uh, yeah. But that's just, that's just not how Lightning functions, right? right? Now, there are other cryptographic you know, or cryptocurrency systems that, that do try to do a peg, like uh, stablecoins uh, die mm -hmm. on... Uh, so that's why I, I think it's we have to be careful about the terminology we use uh, when describing how uh, lightning works from from kind of a economic perspective, but also a technical and legal perspective. Yeah, absolutely. I totally appreciate that. Yeah, and that, and that makes sense. Um, so let's actually let's dive into a little bit about how how lightning works. We've already kind of gotten in there a little bit. So the kind of the novelty, I guess, or the innovation in the Lightning Network paper was the idea of bi-directional payment channels as opposed to the kind of already existing and long, like existed for quite a long time as far as I know. I don't know exactly when the idea of payment channels came around, but those payment, the old idea of payment channels was a, a unidirectional, like you alluded to earlier. Um, so could you talk a little bit about how a bi-directional payment channel works? Yeah, sure, sure thing. Um, so... First, we have to start with kind of what the system looked like beforehand, because um, if you're 
if you're just looking at the lightning white paper in a vacuum, you might think that there's, you know, well, I mean, in the lightning white paper, they talk about previous at attempts at this. But uh, if you're th thinking about bidirectional channels in a vacuum, uh, it's not obvious how you got to how they're constructed today. Um, and really, it's been a very long evolutionary process that started with Satoshi Nakamoto himself. Uh, so in the first version of Bitcoin, he had a system of uh, replacing transactions using uh, what's called an end sequence um, number. And so basically the miner would pick the highest of, of the sequences of this transaction. Uh, the problem is that then the miner can can choose to say, okay, well, actually, this is a lower sequence, or this lower sequence is the highest sequence because it's in the favor of whoever I'm favoring. Uh, so uh, it was trivially, you know, gamed by uh, miners, and we just we don't want a trust model based on uh, the miners uh, being able to censor transactions like that. Um, right. <laughs> and it's so. In any case, um, there were further revolutions. Uh, Spillman style payment channels, and then uh, came along CLTV. Uh, I, I won't get into the like nitty gritty details, but basically there was iteration on how how well these payment channels function. And you, you're right. So with Lightning, you know the the um, bidirectional flow of funds, I think is key uh, if you want to have a network that actually is uh, scalable and, and useful to participants. Because mm -hmm. basically, like, we want to be in a situation where um, you join the Lightning Network, you open chan eight channels with random peers, uh, and just because others are doing that, others are opening channels to you as well, so providing inbound liquidity to you, uh, that basically the whole network is kind of a big mesh network, um, and that you can pretty easily route payments uh, from one side to the other. Uh, with just a, a few hops, or I think, you know, I, I forget what the number, but there's basically like a, a probability distribution uh, right. and you'd want it to be so that like 99.99% of payments happen in, you know, like six less, less than or equal to six hops or whatever it is. Um, and that's, that's feasible. I think that, um, and it makes it uh, not too capital intensive. It's kind of the, the other problem is that, uh, it would be really annoying to have a system where basically you have to put in a huge amount of capital, a lot of Bitcoin into a hot wallet that uh, is managing these channels. Um, and I think that with with advances like uh, Atomic Multipath, where basically you can send the same payment through multiple channels uh, and then they kind of combine each other on, on the ends of the, the sending and the receiving, um, right. So, like all, uh, innovations like that, um, will will make it so that it's not too capital intensive. Um, and then also the uh, the other issue is the autopilot. So the autopilot is automatically opening and closing channels. Uh, and if they're very intelligent autopilot, then they should be able to manage uh, the capital effectively, so that you don't have too little or, or too much just based on your spending habits and receiving habits. But right. that's so a ways you, off. Yeah, okay. But you think that that's basically where we're going is like kind of AI-assisted yeah. autopilot channel management so that it's not manual anymore. Exactly, yep. Yeah. Um, and and uh, we, we have to have that if we want this to, to scale to like 
quote-unquote mainstream consumers. Um, now, I think that uh, it's very important right now that people do experiment with manually opening and closing uh, channels uh, and not rely too much on today's autopilot. And I say that because today's autopilot is kind of a, uh, a, a first iteration on an autopilot and yeah. is by no means like something that you, you should rely on and then just not experiment with. Uh, it's there to be experimented with, so definitely try it out. Um, but also experiment with managing your own channels because if we want to create autopilots that, for example, that you might have an autopilot that's very different for an exchange versus a merchant versus a routing uh, node versus an end user on his mobile or on his desktop and laptop. So each of those might have a very different uh, autopilot uh, configuration. And then there's also just going to be competing trade-offs on, on different autopilots. So for example, like, um, do you have like, do you have a lot of, are you putting a lot of money into it or very little, you know, it's going to behave differently. So all of these things I think are going to have to be derived from, uh, users actually manually opening and closing channels, uh, and us learning from that, uh, rather than, uh, us just, and like to, to program an automated system, I think that you have to manually do it first a right. lot. Uh, so that you know what the pitfalls and opportunities are on the software engineering side of of automating the process. Yeah, I've got, you know, I, I kind of have the same, I guess, idea about how that autopilot is just kind of there to test. But I, you know, it should be used at least a little bit so we know uh, how it's behaving. And so I've got an I've got autopilot set up on one of my Lightning nodes, and it's uh, like all LN big channels, incoming LN big channels. Um, is basically what it opened. Like I opened eight autopilot channels, and it, they were all various channels from um, the LN Big service, uh, all incoming liquidity, obviously. Um, so, and I, I kind of was wondering about like how that happened. Uh, did they like do services sort of sign up to provide liquidity via autopilot, or how does that work? Like right now? Yeah, yeah. So um, it's really ad hoc. So okay, the and really, right now, it's you know, it, we're we're in like the Stone Ages, yeah. uh, and it's it's funny because, you know, it, it's just it's so early. It's uh, it's very early for for Lightning, and there's a lot of different people with kind of different um, theories. Uh, now, some of them uh, state their theories with tremendous con confidence, uh, and uh, so. You, you might mistake it as a factual statement or a uh, <laughs> a well-researched analysis of past data when really it's it's really yeah. high, highly speculative remarks about things that haven't happened yet because it's so early. Um, and yes. so uh, you know there's there's different like you know so, so you could say it well LN big is being really irresponsible because they are um, in some cases deliberately, in some cases accidentally, uh, like spamming the network uh, with capacity. And how useful is this capacity? It's completely out of proportion with the velocity of payments on the network. Right. Uh, it uh, clogs up the public uh, uh, announcement network that announces channels and nodes. Uh, so it's, it's kind of eating up uh, resources on others. And all this criticism, but really, what if it does make sense to open channels, a bunch of channels, 
uh, today because on-chain transaction fees are so low. And that uh, these channels might have a lifetime value that is just mind-boggling. And we don't know that today. And so it's kind of an entrepreneurial uh, risk that they're taking. And I've heard plenty of arguments for and against, but at the end of the day, like, I don't think that there's a a priori um, way we can uh, state whether this is a good entrepreneurial investment or a poor one. Uh, and we'll just have to see what the results are. Um, so what I, are some uh, of the, what are some of the, like the pros and cons you've heard uh, about yeah, Lillian Big? Yeah. So the, the cons are obviously that like, we don't want a centralized entity to be routing so much of the traffic on Lightning, both because that c- could possibly degrade privacy, um, yeah. but also because if they go down or if they get hacked or anything like that happens, uh, it would cripple the network. So yeah. I, I think that um, I think there's a little bit of catastrophizing there. Uh, and I'd actually want to see this happen because it would be a good lesson for everyone to learn. My theory is that if if a big player like Ellen Big or their 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 uh, descendants or people who come along later who who build up big routing nodes or anyone, if they go offline, my theory is that routing fees across the network go up. Um, the uh, failure of payment routing goes up a little yeah. bit, but not significantly. Uh, and that the network just heals itself. And that really, it's not its not a catastrophic situation at all. Uh, it's just an inconvenience. Uh, it's especially an inconvenience because now all those people, let's say Ellen Big did go down, and there's a bunch of people who have channels open with them with capacity in them. Well, now you have to go force close all those channels. Right. So force closing is bad because it takes up more space on the block uh, chain. Uh, and thus, it also costs more to to do. Um, and so the uh, you know that, that that would kind of be a bad outcome. Uh, but if they are responsible and they are um, they stay online and they're reliable routers, uh, then they're providing liquidity to the lightning network and doing a great uh, service. Now, like, I know it's kind of silly for people to think that like they're doing the Lightning Network a favor. Like, I don't think anyone should be doing the Lightning Network a favor. Everyone should be trying to profit off of it because that's ultimately, I I believe in Adam Smith's invisible hand. So yep. I think that if people who run routing nodes uh, gouge uh, and charge a very high rates on, on their on channels connected to them, then the the clients will connect and open channels with other routing nodes that are charging less or yeah, it'll, they'll it'll become routing, routing nodes themselves. exactly yeah it'll incentivize other routing nodes to come online and undercut them <laughs> and, and provide more liquidity to the network so yeah. I, I think that it would be good if people charged more uh, on routing fees and that um we we really shouldn't be worried about like the optics of like oh lightning was supposed to be free blah 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 like that sorry, but those are just idiotic memes. Like I, I I'm sorry that uh, they were uh, expounded and uh, <laughs> you know. But at the same time, there's truth to it in the sense that off-chain will always have lower fees for most payments because if, I think that if you if you look at payments, they fall down on a power law distribution. So you have you know 
0.1% of payments move probably 80% of the value, uh, but the rest of the payments, uh, so th that would be on chain, the rest of the payments would be off chain because they're, they're such low value. And the sure. reason that's, that's important is because uh, on chain you pay per byte, so you pay by the amount of data that you're consuming on the blockchain. Uh, off chain you pay by the amount you're sending. So it's a, per it's a percentage of how much you're sending that you pay because you're consuming liquidity in a certain direction on a channel. Right, right. Makes sense. So are you getting some of the same uh, sort of pushback on Lightning users? Because I know it's one of the biggest nodes on the network. Do you get uh, uh, feedback from other Bitcoiners about, uh, you know, having 1,100 channels open or whatever? <laughs> um, no, because there's a different, like, dynamic with me where basically um, I only open channels to people who request that I open a channel to them. Sure. Um, and, or if I see that they are a ratting hub themselves. Uh, and so in that case, I, I can't imagine that they would mind that I open a channel to them. Yep. Um, but uh, otherwise, it's all, uh, you know, a lot of people opening channels with me. Uh, and so I, 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 I generally, you know, I want to run a very reliable routing node. Uh, and by, by doing that, I think I provide a better UX than others who, you know, are, are publicly advertising themselves as a routing node, but then like consistently offline and, and right. not reliable. And so... Um, I did want to have a routing node that, frankly, like I, uh, there's, there's, I'm not the biggest, right? Like there's other very big routing nodes uh, that are uh, just, you know, I think that you want to have competition because otherwise it does become centralized. Um, there's, def so, there's definitely been something to like opening up channels to people you know or like you know people. Yeah, you know, I, other I think that, you know on Twitter and stuff. I'd have I I would I would be on the receiving end of more criticism if there weren't so many large routing nodes. Uh, so mm -hmm. I think that as long as we uh, continue on this path, it's not like uh, any one of us is critical to the network's functionality, uh, and also it's not it's not harmful. Now, it the one of the issues is that like we don't have an actuarial uh, assessment of what percentage like what's Pierre's uptime going to be. <laughs> Um, and we could have a problem where essentially if one routing node, not necessarily mine, but hypothetically one routing node just turns out to be so reliable uh, that everyone just connects to them uh, and it makes sense from an efficiency perspective because that's how you would minimize routing fees. Uh, and then they yeah, become the like... Availability, don't, don't, like I, I can't imagine how you could beat someone so badly on availability when there's such a low barrier to entry, right? Uh, yeah, so I, I completely agree. So I think that that's why we're not in this scenario. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, one, one could imagine that kind of scenario. Uh, yeah. But I also think that that's what drives also that there are so many large routing nodes, is that they, they do outcompete others on, on reliability. Now, yep. it's not like... It's not the hardest thing in the world to do, uh, but also it screens out a lot of uh, other routing nets. Yeah, it's not it's not the hardest thing in the world to do yet, um, but you know the competition will definitely definitely heat up. Um, and I've I've been thinking long you know for a while now about trying to get into the routing node game because it's still like the opportunity is just so uh, the upside is so immense still because it's still yeah. so early. You know. Well, so I think that. Uh, 
people will make money by selling things, not by from routing fees. Like I, I, I really enough. don't think that um, I like routing fees will be. I, I, I don't want to say break even or whatever, but I think that all of the other ancillary services that are around being a routing node uh, right. will matter more than the routing fees themselves. Like, so for so example, maybe it's just like something you could sort of like tack on if you're a, yeah. a Bitcoin so or a like, Bitcoin service. Yeah. Then you might like say, Hey, you can also route through our node and maybe make a little right. bit of change in addition. Yeah. In my case, uh, if you go to lightningpowerusers.com, you can request that I open a channel with you and provide mm -hmm. you with inbound capacity. So I charge for that and I, I'll make way more. I have already made way more from that than from uh, routing fees. So sure. I think that um, services like that, and I, I have a, a, a laundry list that I want to go through and implement uh, and charge people for because they're useful and it's a scarce resource. Uh, and also make them open source, integrate them into BTC Pay Server uh, so that others can be doing the same so that we can have like a very vibrant ecosystem of uh, routing nodes that are providing kind of a full stack of services for mm -hmm. uh, users of the Lightning Network. Very cool. Very cool. All right, so let's shift focus uh, and talk a bit about a couple, a couple of particular challenges that the Lightning Network is facing, and a couple of proposed solutions. So first up is the problem of onboarding new users onto the Lightning Network quickly, but also prioritizing self sovereignty and this is the problem that you hope BIP-157, which is also known as Neutrino, will help solve. Can you describe the problem you're seeing as the operator and creator of, of the operator of uh, you know, Lightning Power Users Node and, and the node launcher that has you um, supporting BIP-157? Yeah, so right now the UX with the node launchers that you open the application and Bitcoin the full node has to sync before you can use the Lightning Network. So typically that'll take anywhere from like six hours to two weeks uh, based on the person's internet connection because the Bitcoin okay. full node has to do what's called initial block download. Right. Uh, initial block download starts with the Genesis block in 2009 and then processes more than 500,000 blocks subsequent to that and uh, verifies that they are all following the uh, consensus rules that is are implemented in the um, in the implementation that you are using uh, right. of the Bitcoin protocol. So um, that process takes a while. Mostly, usually the bottleneck is people's bandwidth. So uh, if you're on fiber and you have a very good internet connection, then your bottleneck will generally be uh, your hard drive or your CPU. Yeah. Um, now, or your RAM. So uh, basically, uh, the node launcher, um, yeah, so that's that's what ends up taking so long. And people uh, will kind of get frustrated and go online and find a custodial wallet like Blue Wallet uh, and sign up for that and then <laughs> instantly be using the Lightning Network uh, it, using a custodial wallet that is centralized. And they, so, they, they might think that they're using the Lightning Network, but they're they're not really using the Lightning Network. They're using a service that is using the Lightning Network, <laughs> right, um, yeah. which you know we can debate about. But anyway, um, yeah. it, it's so uh, it, it's the I, I spectrum would, of self sovereignty and all that. Yeah, but uh, I'm I'm dissatisfied with this situation for one simple reason: is that I don't think it has to be this way. 
Um, sure. What what I think that we could have with the node launcher is you download the node launcher, you open it, and it uses a light client technology called uh, BIP157 or Neutrino. Uh, and this light client technology would over Tor connect to my light client server and allow them to allow the node launcher user to be on Lightning in a matter of minutes using cool. the light client as the backend. Now, at the same time, the full Bitcoin node does start syncing. And when the full Bitcoin node is finished syncing, then the, uh, the LND with the Lightning node will restart and use the full node as the backend instead of the light client. So okay. what this allows us is to have a rapid onboarding while also having the user progress to a trustless uh, state of affairs. Okay. And so in between that time, so while the initial block download is happening um, and the user's client is, or I guess LND is connected to your full node, right? Correct. Or, or a full node that's serving up block like one fifty seven filters. filters. Yep. Yeah, filters. Yeah. Um so they'll they'll get the filters from you and that's basically is like a representation of what's in a block. Um correct. And, so yeah, yeah, what the filter allows you to do is that so basically my my Bitcoin full node server sends your light client a filter okay. and you can cryptographically query that filter using a transaction that, that you are looking for. Um, and if the transaction is in that filter, it'll just return true. And then you'll go and download the full block and then get the actual transaction out of the block. Now, right. so the benefit being that you only have to download the blocks that have your transactions, right? Exactly. Yeah. Okay, cool. And so this is BIP-157 is an improvement on the current SPV or light client protocol that we use now, which is BIP 37 mostly for the most part, I guess that's right. the most common. And the, I get, from what I understand, like the main differences are like, there's a, there's a big privacy difference because in BIP 157, your server is sending the filter to you to kind of query. And in BIP 37, it's the opposite. Uh, the client says, hey, this is what, these transactions are what I'm interested in, or like these addresses are what I'm interested in. And it tries to kind of obscure that a little bit with like some randomness, but it doesn't really work that well. Is that? That's that correct. Okay. Okay. Broadly speaking. Yeah. Um, it's just, yeah, it's um, the, the privacy aspect is, is a problem. I also just think that kind of the, the cost on full nodes is a problem too. Uh, it's less expensive for the full node to have to generate the, uh, its filters once and send them to clients and to have to be, uh, you know, Generally on demand. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That makes it just makes a lot more sense. Um, yeah. So, what are the chances that this is going to get merged into core? It sounds like it's uh, gaining gaining steam right now. Yeah, hundred percent. Cool. Yeah. It's just a matter of time. Yep. Okay. Awesome. So. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, and the reason it's a hundred percent, frankly, uh, that the creator of the pull request, who also was one of the creators of BIP-157 itself, Jim Poston, uh, mm -hmm. is just a fantastic software engineer. And uh, his, his code is just spotless. And uh, well, I mean, there's, there's 
there's been feedback on it, obviously, as with any software, but in terms of uh, on relative quality, like it's extremely high quality software engineering and it makes it very easy for the maintainers and the other contributors to Bitcoin Core to, to feel confident that they can merge this in. Um, now, there is to, the only blocker to getting this merged in would have been if it was on by default, uh, which had opposition to 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 that. So okay. uh, it is off by default, and you have to manually turn it on uh, and to be able to surf up uh, the filters. But okay. I think that's a perfectly acceptable state of affairs. Yeah. So you can just you can opt in to be to provide neutrino filters to light clients. That makes yep. sense. Yeah. All right. Cool. Well, I'm looking forward to that, and uh, I will I will be a neutrino filter provider. <laughs> Um, all right. So the next second uh, issue facing Lightning that I want to talk about is uh, incoming liquidity. All right, inbound capacity. Um, I know, like you've mentioned already, you've been helping early adopters on the Lightning Network with this issue. Uh, you have a you know you have a service, and I think there's what's the other one, Bit Refill maybe that offered yep. that service as well. Yeah, it's, their service is called Thor, and then. Uh, Last week, or was it this week? I, I can't keep track of time now. Uh, Lightning Labs came out with Loop. Right. Yeah, and that's what I wanted to talk about. So uh, Lightning Loop will basically, well, yeah, you want to you describe your understanding of how, of how Lightning Loop is, is supposed to work? Yeah, yeah. so basically, um, <clears throat> let's say you are a merchant that is receiving Bitcoin for and selling goods or services. You're right. using BTC Pay Server, and you're using LND inside of BTC Pay Server, and so people are able to have just a fantastic checkout experience. Uh, and the problem you're having is that you're having your so let's say uh, Lightning Power Users opens a channel with you, and that way you have inbound capacity for five million satoshis. Okay. Uh, you get orders that come in as they come in you have less and less inbound capacity and more and more outbound capacity. Um, so what uh, Loop will allow you to do is, now, one thing you could do would be like, all right, let's close the channel with Pierre, with Lightning Power Users, and yeah. let's have him open a new one so that we reset things, basically. And right. when we close the channel, like you'll receive the funds on-chain, uh, anything uh, that was still in inbound capacity like goes back to me, but ideally, you know, we would close it when it's 100% on your end. Uh, mm -hmm. And and then I open a, a channel uh, with more inbound capacity uh, to you. So that's right. two on-chain transactions, right? What right. Loop allows you to do is do that in one on-chain transaction by doing what's called a reverse submarine swap. So <laughs> I'm glad they came up with uh, Loop as kind of the marketing name because it yeah. a bit hard to, but basically the idea is that um, uh, there will be more off-chain payments that happen, uh, but one less on-chain transaction. Uh, where basically I would, um, so let me get this straight. So basically, you, the merchant, now have a bunch of outbound capacity. So right. you send that outbound capacity to the loop server. And then you'll have a non-chain transaction, uh, and it's atomic, so there's no chance of them cheating you. And then you have an on-chain transaction uh, paying you those funds on-chain. Um, and now the channel 
only has inbound capacity for you, the uh -huh. merchant, because you consumed all of the outbound capacity, sending it to Lightning Power users that then sent it, that routed that payment to the loop uh, uh, server sure. that is doing the atomic swap uh, on chain. So you added you added more off chain payments, but you got rid of one on chain transaction, which is a big win and uh, is yet another. So um, those are the two options I just described. Uh, there's a third one where basically you try to rebalance between your channels, but that's not really useful for a merchant, right? Because they're just their problem is that they're only getting it in one direction. Yeah. Um, for for routing nodes that are sending and receiving in, in both directions, uh, they have more opportunities where they're trying to rebalance between their own channels. And so basically, there's a, a, a Python script out there that allows you to uh, say, all right, I want less inbound capacity on this channel uh, and more inbound capacity on this channel. Let's try to find a route uh, that will make that happen. Very so, cool. Um, now, uh, my I haven't uh, used it systematically yet, and I, I'd really like to, but when I used it ad hoc, just like type, manually typing things in and, and kind of poking at it, yeah. um, I, I ended up paying a lot in routing fees uh, because I think that it's basically the case that for the large routing nodes, uh, things are pretty efficient. So uh, you're often, you know, maybe better off opening a channel with an on-chain transaction uh, than trying to use them to rebalance your channels uh, because they are paying or charging competitive routing fees. It's and, really cool that, that, that's yeah. like, that that's already the case at this early stage. Yeah, now I, I that was anecdotal. Like, it, it might yeah. if I start collecting data and I see that, like, oh no, it's not the case. Like, uh, sure. um, I definitely want to. In either case, I want to come out with a medium post kind of describing this, but I just haven't gotten yeah. around to it. I've got a, a long laundry list. Of dudes. Yeah, <laughs> I can imagine. I can imagine. So, um, the the loop technology then is going to be mostly, or at least like, there's there's kind of two two versions of it or two, I guess, uh, aspects of loop. There's a loop out and loop in. And loop out is what they launched for testing last week. And that's mo like mostly going to be useful for merchants or people who are mo like receiving on the Lightning Network so that they can get inbound capacity again. Um, and that's, I mean, this kind of technology and the fact that like even this is possible, you know, is, is a, a really good signal because it's it just basically like reinforces all of the kind of claims that like you know these problems that lightning work is facing are like coding problems and ma like math problems you know like we can figure this stuff out and automate it and uh, like the lightning network that we have five ten years from now is going to be much less manual much more automated all kind of written into software and put behind a beautiful user interface yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and I, I became persuaded of that at the uh, Lightning residency when, when we were kind of talking about the current challenges and then the opportunities that are ahead for, for adapting and evolving the protocol. And we're already seeing uh, changes that are just making it better. And I, I think we've barely scratched the surface. I think that by the time, uh, you know, let's let's say in like 20 years when I think I'm fairly confident that Lightning will be very widely used and widely accepted uh, as a payments network, that it will just be a very lean and efficient machine 
that functions in a completely automated manner. And we're just hugely benefiting from all that automation. Talk about liquidity. <laughs> yeah. So like there, I, I don't know what the economics and looking like, but yeah, I, my, my controversial uh, hot take is that every Bitcoin UTXO that is in existence will be on lightning and there really won't be anyone uh, holding BTC that's not on, on Lightning. Oh, really? Um, the whole like the whole system will move to the, the second layer? Every basically? every UTXO that, yeah, that someone mm-hmm. has a private key for will have been moved onto, uh, freed from the chain and put onto an off-chain transaction. Right, and there will still be plenty of on-chain transactions happening to Right, it'll just be mining. like yeah. inputs or closing channels, outputs or opening channels. Interesting, which kind of makes sense if if you look at like you know the analogy of like TCP/IP and BTCLN, um, yep. you know because basically everything happens over over IP and TCP just kind of supports it, you know. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Makes sense. Awesome, that's super exciting. Uh, I love that vision of the future, and I'm on board. I'm here for it. Um, all right, so let's talk a bit about a bit more about your experience, um, personal experience, you know, building the node launcher and lightning power users. One of our listeners wanted me to ask you, because he's um, a Bitcoiner who is learning to code right now. And I think that's kind of a trend, uh, which is cool. I know Justin Moon talked about this um, or talks about, I've seen, I heard him talk about it a couple of times uh, that, you know, he kind of made the assumption that he was going to kind of go out and teach coders about Bitcoin and the market kind of came back and said, nope, actually Bitcoiners want to learn how to code from you. <laughs> it's the other way yep. around. Yeah. Um, and that just, I, I see that happening too, anecdotally around me. Um, so he wanted me to ask you if you could talk about your transition from like what you were doing before, which I think was like um, accounting. accounting work. Yep. Yeah. Into coding. Um, like when did you start learning to code? What resources did you use? Mm-hmm. Uh, any tips or advice that you have for Bitcoiners who are looking to start coding? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So uh, I went to college and got a bachelor's and master's degree in accounting. Um, and then I worked at Deloitte in uh, auditing, well, doing performing attestation services for uh, new issuances of securitization deals. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was like after the financial crisis and all that. So it wasn't as cool as before. But um, <laughs> In any case, uh, I started learning how to code kind of the, the summer between graduating from grad school and going to Deloitte, um, where I wanted to write Bitcoin accounting software. I was already interested in Bitcoin. And as an accountant, it was like like when people have like a real estate background or a, a financial services background, like they'll be like, oh, let's put real estate on the blockchain or yeah. oh, let's put securities on the blockchain. Or if they have like a medical background, they're like, oh, let's put medical records on the blockchain. Um, but I just had an accounting background. So I was like, oh, let's put Bitcoin into accounting software. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think that ultimately that was a much more pragmatic uh, approach. So I went on uh, Code Academy and I learned Python, my first steps in Python uh, from their tutorials. Uh, and then I went through a, a tutorial on how to use Flask, which is a Python web framework. And when I created my first uh, interactive application that used a SQL database, um, Flask, and then like front end like HTML and CSS, I was like, 
wow, I just created a web page and I can pretty much do anything with this combination of tools because that's yeah. really any web service is just that. It's a website, uh, a web server, and a database. Um, right. Now, obviously, there's a bunch of fancy crap that you can add to it to <laughs> yeah. make it web scale. But in any case, um, I, I got very hooked onto software development and also just wanted to learn more about like advanced topics like object-oriented programming, functional programming, all these different like theories that have come out of uh, with relational databases. And uh, um, anyway, I, I got fascinated by that world, but uh, I, I, I um, spent a lot of time banging my head against things because software development is like, is that uh yeah, there's just here's a problem overcome it here's yeah, the next problem exactly. overcome it here's the next problem overcome it yeah now ideally it takes you less and less time to figure out a problem because you get better at how to figure out a problem yeah. uh, so in, in any case there are better websites now than codecademy um but i would still recommend python as someone's first language and i would still recommend Flask as someone's first web framework, uh, and then um, they for for their SQL database, I'd recommend PostgreSQL, and uh, then there's a Python library called SQL Alchemy, which allows you to connect your web application with uh, your SQL database, and that's the stack I would recommend to anyone uh, that's new because it's so powerful. And um, I also wrote a Medium post uh, called um, Let's see, technical understanding the technical side of Bitcoin mm -hmm. uh, because um, so now this this starts out with like how to use the command line how to use git uh, how to use like the Bitcoin command line so like Bitcoin CLI uh, how right. to use the lightning CLI um, and then also then how to start learning how to program uh, because I think that like some familiarity with the command line is, is helpful uh, I would argue that people should not get too much familiarity with the command line. Otherwise, they, they lose touch with the users. I've seen that happen a lot with developers, but I don't want to name names. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't like the command line. So I, I love graphical user interfaces, and that's why I created the node launcher, so that I wouldn't have to use the command line to do yeah. what I was doing. Right. Um, and so that's, that's where I would recommend uh, learning how to code is Something like Codecademy. Uh, Justin Moon actually has a different uh, recommendation than Codecademy. I'd have to hunt that down. Um, but in any case, it it the only problem with Codecademy now, I think like everything's paywalled because they got so popular. Uh, okay. But uh, this is an area where like I think it makes sense to invest money in in learning things. Uh, it's like invest in yourself, and uh, I strongly believe that I've I've bought too many you know, $100 programming books, uh, but I end up reading them and really enjoying them and uh, getting a lot from them. So I've never regretted uh, spending money on software development education uh, and Code Academy is pretty reasonable. Uh, and oh, so yeah. is Biddle Bootcamp uh, with Justin. Yeah, and the, I mean, the, the cost is going to be recouped because obviously demand just keeps rising. Uh, yeah, no I mean, like there's, there's the career aspect of it, like of, you could make more money if you were programming, but there's also just the uh, personal improvement and like your ability to create your own personal projects on the side on the weekend 
uh, that uh, then like you're contributing to the ecosystem and you're helping improve Bitcoin, which you might be invested in financially. So uh, yeah. or ideologically. Right. Um, and so there is kind of an aspect of like people wanting to learn how to program because they want to help, uh, yeah, not necessarily even because they're yeah. trying to like advance their own career or anything like that. Although that's a very nice side effect of, of wanting to help. True. True. So have you dabbled in using, uh, like actually coding up websites to accept lightning payments? I mean, did you get oh, yeah. so, custom coded that all that stuff on, on the front page of lightningpowerusers.com, right? Yeah. Uh, so that is some very artisanal hand woven, <laughs> Uh, software great. development on my end. Uh, yeah, I, I wrote all that. I learned a lot doing that. Um, and I want to teach others about what I've learned. Uh, so I'm going to be doing uh, like training sessions. Um, one is going to be before the consensus conference here in New York uh, in, um, in May. On Saturday, uh, I'll be teaching developers, but also people who are interested in becoming developers because it's going to be very light on the code and very heavy on the lightning concepts and like because the Lightning LND uh, from Lightning Labs comes with a very nice API that you can program again. So you yeah. don't even really need to know that much about software development to use this because you can get a lot done with a few lines of code. Yeah. Um, so as long as you can read English and understand like kind of what a for loop does, uh, then I think that uh, you can definitely fit in at, at one of these workshops. Um, and yeah, there's once once you've kind of figured it out, um, it's pretty easy to code up integrations for sending and receiving lightning payments. Uh, well, knock on wood, I haven't gotten hacked yet, so um, I don't know about the security side. I'm not a security expert by any means, but uh, I, I haven't had my money drained out of my account yet. <laughs> which is, you know, probably a testament to the protocol itself, which is... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, they put a lot of effort in making sure that the Lightning node implementations are um, robust versus network adversaries and not open to, you know, bugs or vulnerabilities. But who knows? Like, the, there could end up being some. So far, the, the only vulnerabilities have been kind of denial of service attacks uh, using up resources. Um, right. haven't heard of any kind of like, we were able to take a bunch of Bitcoin out of someone's channel. Right. Just taking some nodes down. I think that happened like middle of last year, like a few couple, like yeah. a couple hundred nodes got taken down from a denial of service attack, basically. Which obviously we should take seriously, but, um, it didn't cause loss of funds as far as I'm, uh, far, as far as I know. Right. Right. Okay. Um, two last, two questions left. Um, first just to kind of wrap up on lightning um, obviously besides one besides bit 157 what do you think are some of the most important features or capabilities that lightning can add over the next year or two uh, well uh, so in terms of base layer improvements uh, bit 157 is technically it's not part of it's not a, a change to the Bitcoin protocol in the sense of like the consensus rules like CLTV and CSV and segwit were um, but I do think that there are other uh, base protocol improvements that will be happening. Uh, so there's uh, one will enable L2, which uh, is basically an alternative model for how to um, 
enforce these lightning contracts. And the advantage of this model is that it doesn't have a punishment component to it. Um, right, right. The disadvantage is that it requires a soft fork to add an opcode. And I think that we'll eventually see that happen. I don't know the exact timing on it because it's still being discussed. Um, and then on the uh, signature side, uh, Schnorr is going to be an improvement and being able to do um, do Schnorr with uh, signature aggregation is also going to be an improvement in terms of the economics of Lightning. So uh, we've got that to look forward to. Uh, but on the Lightning side, uh, we've got Lumbo, which is going to be so that two nodes can opt in to open a channel of arbitrary size. So you could have you know, a 500 Bitcoin channel between two massive exchanges and they're just shifting balances back and forth. That'd be okay. really cool. Yeah. Um, Wumbo, and then- uh, Is that like AMP. a dual funded channel then? Uh, so dual funded channel is also a thing that's gonna be in the next uh, iteration of the Lightning Protocol in 1.1. Okay. Uh, but um, it's not, yeah, it, they're not tied together, but they're, they're coming out together. Um, gotcha. And uh, the other thing will be, uh, I briefly mentioned uh, Atomic Multipath, which is basically mm -hmm. that you can send one payment and it can be routed through different routes. And so that will allow you to minimize your routing fee uh, and also help you avoid imbalancing your channels too much. Um, currently, that's, that's kind of like how IP works too, right? So it's like it's it's almost a, um, a more true version of payments as packets, I guess. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Uh, yeah. So I think that those those already are going to be huge. Now, there's also going to be um, additions to the implementations themselves uh, and modifications. So. Uh, for example, for LND, they're going to be coming out with a better system for monitoring your node, which is basically going to provide a bunch of real-time data that then you can consume uh, in a structured manner. Um, so that's exciting for people who are running routing nodes and trying to like get all this data together. Um, then the other the other aspects of it are kind of the like I, I think that there's a bunch of small low-hanging fruit that can be picked. So, for example, one of my frustrations has been the inconsistency in naming things. And so I think that like like simple things like pub key is pub underscore key or one word pub key. Like it's <laughs> not consistent across the ecosystem. So I think that like things like that kind of need to find an equilibrium where it helps. Uh, developers be more uh, productive. Um, and yeah, I think that there's a lot of people experimenting with uh, Lightning applications, Lightning games, uh, and trying to use the Lightning protocol in new and novel ways, which is exciting. And uh, I think that's where like the creativity of, uh, you know, we don't know what's going to be the next killer app. We don't know what the next Lightning trust chain is going to be. Right. But it's just going to like emerge from the ecosystem because there's so many smart people who are creative people uh, working on different projects that uh, it's just, you know, a matter of the odds. Um, and then in terms of like wider lightning adoption, I think that's just going to be a consequence of the Bitcoin price going up. So sure. we saw during past bull markets, what happens is that people who bought Bitcoin before the, before the bull market started, um, 
they suddenly have like this wealth effect where they want to go spend Bitcoin uh, because they made a big, big value appreciation, right? right. <laughs> like, yep. So they could go on an exchange and sell their Bitcoin and then go spend it, spend the fiat or more conveniently and with better privacy, they can just spend the Bitcoin directly with a merchant using either on-chain or off-chain. So uh, I think that that's going to lead to more velocity on the Lightning Network. Um, and on top of that, the uh, the base layer, you know, blocks are almost full at this point. So I think that with the next bull market, blocks will be full and there will yeah. be a lot of fee pressure. And that's going to drive even more people onto the Lightning Network. Um, and yeah, so I think that it's got a very exciting uh, 18 months ahead of it. That's awesome. All right. So let's... let's um really expand the time horizon for the last question. Yeah. Let's say 50 years from now, what does a Bitcoin future look like to you? Oh man, it's so utopian. Um, so <laughs> I, yeah, I think that um, first of all, all fiat currencies have been entirely replaced by Bitcoin. BTC is basically the only unit of account medium exchange uh, that is used. Uh, it has deflated Assets that were stores of value, like uh, housing or you know, like uh, paintings and whatever, uh, because now it just makes more sense to store your value in BTC. Um, and then uh, on the that on the payments side, um, everyone's using Lightning. Uh, very few, if any, are using on-chain. None. Uh, and Lightning is just a like almost a, a kind of, I, I, I don't know how to say it without sounding like religious about it, but <laughs> it would just be such a nice public service, like a big utility essentially, because it's this open source decentralized network that dramatically lowers the transaction costs of human commerce. And so right. now you have people able to send payments from anywhere in the world to anywhere else, uh, instantly at a very low fee uh, with no middlemen, uh, which is like, that's the vision we were all working towards from the beginning, right? Um, yeah. And I, so that I think is just going to be a huge boon to humanity, even if you take out the sound money from the equation. Now, so you combine the two, the sound money and the, the just fantastic economics of this payments network. Uh, and I think that the next 50 years are going to be uh, looked at as kind of a, a renaissance, like a rebirth of, of human um, optimism and creativity and prosperity. The Bitcoin renaissance. Exactly. Talked with Ansel Lindner about that a few episodes ago. and uh, After the, uh, the dark ages of modernity, where we had like crackheads littering the streets and, uh, you know, just a, a kind of um, degrading of society, of, of politics of morals um but anyway yeah i'm excited well, what, about the next 50 years so am i what do you think how, how does bitcoin i mean that's sort of the economic impact how does bitcoin affect sociopolitics in your mind what is uh, the, so how do we, orga how do we that, organize society in a bitcoin world? oh well i think that um that's kind of that's downstream of economics yeah, so definitely. um in the sense that, like, I think the reason things have gotten as bad as they have is because the economics of fiat actually made sense, uh, where basically the um, the U.S. dollar had to have a 
monetary policy that was just good enough to stay afloat versus gold, um, but otherwise could print as much as it wanted, right? As much right. as it wants. Um, and so the reason it can do that is because of the much lower transaction costs of dealing with the US dollar than with physical gold. Um, so once we do away with that, uh, with Bitcoin and um, Bitcoin kind of replaces the dollar, I think that it changes the economics of uh, sovereign nations in the sense that now not, they no longer have the ability to uh, abuse seniorage to provide, you know, essentially a, an inflation tax that takes from people who hold their currency in order to subsidize politically connected uh, or, or, I mean, they might be subsidizing like legitimate social programs, right? Like the, the that are voted for by the populace and, and popular. So, sure. um, but in, in any case, it, it removes that inflation tax and makes it so that the government now has to go and get the revenues by an actual tax, right? Uh, right. An actual income tax or, or consumption tax or a property tax or whatever it is. Uh, and they can no longer rely on the seniorage from, from the currency debasement. So that's kind of on, on that end of the monetary equation. On the payment side of the equation, uh, we have a dramatic change in the flow of information in the payment system. Today, right. and specifically in the US, like the banking system uh, has total and complete visibility into all financial transactions that are moving money around except for $100 bills, except for actual physical cash, right? Right. Um, and so that means that uh, they have been deputized by governments in order to enforce these uh, anti-money laundering laws. And basically, anti-money, uh, uh, like money laundering itself, in my opinion, like it doesn't really make sense that it is a crime. I think that what you're doing that's related to the money is a crime. So like <laughs> yeah, if sure. you are trafficking slaves, then that's the crime. I think that the money like aspect of it um, is is just a convenient way of getting them in jail, right? And I don't think that's how a just society should function. And I don't think that's how an honest legal system should function. I think an honest legal system should punish people for uh, uh, immoral or unjust things or violations of other people's property rights or abhorrent acts that they've committed. I think that people should be punished for the bad that they've done, not for, oh, here's this bureaucratically uh, convenient uh, way that we can get them on a technicality. Because I think that taking that shortcut is corrosive to the legitimacy of uh, judicial institutions and is corrosive to the law uh, and jurisprudence. So I, I think that it, if to the extent that uh, Bitcoin makes it so that the we remove all of the payments from uh, third parties, then governments can no longer abuse third parties by either deputizing them as law enforcement or by um, having the ability to easily get the data because courts have ruled that there's no reasonable expectation of privacy from using a financial institution, which I think on its face is absurd. I think that if you're using a financial institution, you should have a reasonable expectation of privacy. They should protect your data from others. But 
it's, totally. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's kind of a, a principal agent problem, right? Where um, it's more profitable for them not to, uh, right. and the government, it's more convenient for them not to. Um, right. And so judges have ruled that way. I think that it is, uh, from a, a legal perspective, kind of a, an abomination uh, and a huge disappointment that we've gone in this direction in society. Um, and we need to restore, uh, frankly, what our founding fathers and many, many people since uh, lost their lives for or put their lives at risk for, uh, which is the protection of our property from uh, a, a government that is trying to raise money in unjust ways. So, uh, I, like, there's, you know, all sorts of provisions in the Bill of Rights. Uh, but the, a very important one, I think it's the Fourth Amendment, right, which is against uh, search and seizure. Yep. That, you know, so in, in any case, um, what Lightning allows us to do is remove the third parties. Uh, so then now, uh, if they want to get your records regarding payments, they have to come to your home and actually serve a search warrant uh, that is a much higher, uh, it's, it's more difficult to get one than it, to get one on, on a bank, right? Because of that presumption of privacy. You do have the presumption of privacy in your private home. Yep. Uh, and then they have to seize your computer. Uh, now, maybe it's encrypted. So now they have to uh, maybe get your password. But that's, you know, as we saw with the Apple iPhone and the controversy with the FBI around that, it's not a given that you have to give your password either um, right. because of your right to not self-incriminate. So the bank, they don't, they're not going to plead the fifth for you. Uh, that's something only you can do. And so by moving all of your payments data uh, back to your personal uh, effects and your personal belongings, now not only do you have uh, the protection from the expectation of privacy, but you also have Fifth Amendment uh, protection and mm. the right to not incriminate yourself. So uh, you withholding your password could arguably fall into that. Now, maybe that'll get tested and whatnot. But in any case, what that means is that um, it dramatically changes the economics of, of actual taxation because almost all money laundering is for tax evasion. Almost none of it is for terrorism, obviously. Like, <laughs> how much money do terrorists have? Like, they're, they don't even need that much money. They're, they're hijacking a plane crashing Right. Uh, anyway, uh, so that's that's like that's trivial. Uh, drug dealing is bigger, but I also think all drugs should be legalized. Uh, yeah. And so I, I and also like if we actually looked at who's doing the most drug trafficking, like I, I wouldn't be totally surprised if there's a lot of state actors involved who would who otherwise crack down on uh, on money laundering. But they themselves are doing quite a bit of money laundering uh, in any case. <laughs> Um, wouldn't, surprise, wouldn't surprise me. And, yeah, yeah we're, we're I don't have any concrete evidence of it, and I don't necessarily want any evidence of it, uh, just for my own <laughs> life. But um, in any case, uh, I think that, so put aside the terrorism, the drugs, and uh, all the terrible, you know, things that get listed by politicians and by uh, bureaucrats, the real issue with money laundering is tax evasion. And yeah. if with Bitcoin, um, if at equilibrium, well, we have more people who have more financial privacy and thus they are able to evade more taxes. 
Now, I'm not saying anyone should evade taxes because if you get caught, there are dire consequences. And I wouldn't want that for you personally or for your family or for your finances. Like uh, the, the IRS has ways of catching people who evade taxes. My argument is that uh, those ways are more expensive than the current way of just getting all your bank records from your bank. Right. So to the extent that at equilibrium, we have more tax evasion. And the higher taxes are, the more tax evasion we have. So now I think that governments are become in a very difficult position where they can no longer rely on the inflation tax and their ability to tax people has got has been diminished due to the increase in privacy. Um, now they are in a position where they have to actually provide services. They actually have to have le legitimacy so that their ability to tax is not completely impaired. Uh, so right. that right. you know people yeah. will actually say, "Hey, it's good to pay your taxes because we get fantastic services from these organizations." And we're happy to voluntarily pay our taxes, even though, while, while it's illegal, we could evade our taxes re, re, relatively easily. Um, right. And yeah. so it, it means, yeah, it means that governments have to be more accountable. And I think that yes. whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, a conservative, a libertarian or a liberal or a progressive, you should, hey, everyone should want accountable government, right? Yes. Like. Uh, it, what we don't want, everyone doesn't want authoritarian government that is unaccountable, that does whatever it wants, right? Like that's what we don't want. It, exactly. As, as a as a society, right? That's what, I, we, I all, think, that's what we all don't want. Yeah, <laughs> it seems self-evident to me. Um, yes. And so, if you are a progressive that wants government to have a big role, then it is government's responsibility to demonstrate to the population that it can take on a big role and execute its functions. In an, in an efficient manner that provides the services that everyone wants at a cost that is appropriate and, uh, you know, legitimate. So uh, I, I think that to, to that extent, we'll see governments become better institutions. And if they don't become better institutions, then they become institutions that are diminished in power and importance and have to abdicate their role to private sector institutions. And yeah. so I think that um, we'll see small tyrannical governments that are, uh, you know, kind of like uh, back in the day, you would have like, you know, princes that have a little amount of territory and they're, they're kind of jerks, but that's why they don't become very big and they don't have a lot of power. Um, right. On the other hand, like we might also have very large, powerful democracies, uh, like, you know, Scandinavian countries where like everyone gets along and everyone is going for a common purpose or Singapore is kind of like this as well. Now they've been accused of having some, you know, issues with authoritarianism, but um, by and large, the government is competent and efficient and thus people are willing to give it a lot of responsibility. Uh, and I think that's, that's fine. That sounds perfectly reasonable to me, Pierre. That's almost too reasonable. Actually, that sounds uh, in this day and age of political rhetoric, um, Maybe the most reasonable thing I've heard in a long time. <laughs> yeah, I, and I, it, you know, our, our politics is really spun out of control. Like, yeah, uh, yeah. and I, I try not to keep up with it too much, but I do occasionally see things, whether you know it's tweets that I see or uh, clips from cable news, and um, I, I think to myself, um, 
we are very fortunate right now that the people who are going to be most undermined by Bitcoin are so distracted. Yes. Yeah. It's true. They, uh, we're sort of flying yeah. under the flying under the radar still, even though completely under the radar. And let's yeah. keep in mind, like even even at the end of 2017, like with the massive bull market, like everyone was in in the political realm was so distracted that like they didn't really think about Bitcoin much at all. And so, uh, as long as it stays that way, then we'll, we're we're just not going to see like legislation go through that tries to ban Bitcoin or anything like that. Yeah. Yep. And we just got we just got to keep our heads down and keep working and yep. grinding this thing out and it's it's coming along and it's super exciting. Um, I think we can wrap it up and end it right there. Is there anything that you'd like to uh, share with the listeners before we? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so uh, go to my well, go to lightningpowerusers.com. Uh, on the left, you'll see uh, install Jewel. Click that button. And it'll take you to my Medium post that is a guide on how to get yourself set up on the Bitcoin and Lightning Network. And uh, work through that tutorial. Uh, read it carefully. I, every sentence is in there for a reason. Uh, and <laughs> it's because someone's tripped up on it before. And uh, right now, you know, it's still kind of an involved pro process. Uh, but I'm, I'm, work I'm still working on the node launcher. I'm iterating on it. Uh, it's, the next version is going to be even simpler. It's going to continue to get simpler and faster. Uh, so keep an eye out for improvements. Uh, check out my Twitter account, app here, underscore Rochard. Uh, I'm, I'm very excited about uh, yeah where I'm going with the, the node launcher. And then if you need some inbound capacity, go to lightningpowerusers.com and have me open the channel to you. Absolutely. And visit satoshinakamotoinstitute.org and yep. read it from start to finish. Uh, if you haven't yet, just just you know make it like a, a goal to read a post a day or a week or something and just get through all of that uh, between that page and like Jameson Lops, lop.net slash Bitcoin. I think he actually has a better domain name, Bitcoin.page. Those two websites will basically teach you everything you need to know about Bitcoin. Yeah. Uh, and speaking of the Nakamoto Institute, we're having the uh, second annual dinner for the Nakamoto Institute in Dallas uh, as part. It's, it's going to be not part of, but adjacent to the Bitlock Boom Conference. Uh, and the Bitlock Boom Conference I went to last year and spoke at, and it was just a fantastic, very well-organized conference in Dallas, Texas. Uh, this year, it's August 17th and 18th. Uh, the Nakamoto Institute annual dinner will be on the evening of the 16th, so on Friday before the conference. Uh, at the conference will be Tone Vays, Jimmy Song, Safedina Moose, myself, Michael Goldstein, Marty Bent, uh, Peter McCormack, Justin Moon, a bunch of people um, that, uh, frankly, there's also like new people that you should meet uh, because there's a lot of people that are kind of, they're not under the radar, but they're not as uh, big of lab mouses as, as we are on Twitter. <laughs> um, and, but they're, they're more intelligent than we are. And so you definitely want to meet them. So I highly recommend going to BitBlockBoomConference sorry, bitblockboom.com, uh, and get yourself tickets to the conference. Uh, ask uh, Michael Goldstein about uh, getting going to the uh, Nakamoto Institute dinner. Uh, he'll get you set up for that. Uh, and then uh, tickets seem to be 
going up in price. So right now, yeah. general admission ticket is two hundred seventy dollars, uh, and yeah. Well, there's there's a there's a hard cap, right, on the number of tickets. So this is yeah, a, this there is. Commodity. There's only 125 that will be sold. So get in on that right. presale. Uh, use the <laughs> promo code SNI so that we get credit for that um, and help support the Nakamoto Institute. So yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. It's going to be a lot of fun. I, it was so much fun last year. We were like up until 3 a.m. at the hotel bar, drunk and talking about monetary economics with Safedine. Like that's oh where God. you want to be at in August. I'm thinking. I, I'm thinking really hard about driving down there, trying to figure out the logistics. We just bought tickets for the uh, Bitcoin 2019 conference in San Francisco. Yeah, in June. So we're going. I'll out be there. there as well. So yeah, definitely, uh, all you listeners out there, go to that conference as well. I'll be speaking about uh, Lightning, and um, that actually, I don't know if this is public yet, but it will be public soon enough. Uh, there's going to be a bus that's going to drive from LA to San Francisco and then back to LA um, it did before the conference and then after the conference. It's going to be an eight-hour bus ride. Uh, it's going to be a bunch of Bitcoiners. And oh, uh, I think, uh, you know, Brecky on Twitter? Yeah. Von, uh, yeah. Von so he's helping organize it. It's going to be a lot of fun. That sounds pretty great. And, All right, well, uh, we yeah, it's going to be open to the public. We got to get drunk and talk about Bitcoin until 3 a.m. in San Francisco, Pierre. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> All right, I'm looking forward to that, and I and I'm going to try super hard to get down to um, Bitblog Boom too. Yeah, I think I'm going to make it happen. I just got to arrange some some personal matters to get down there. Fair um, enough. But yeah, all right. Thank you so much, Pierre. This was super fun. Um, it's really cool to, you know, go from trolling you on Twitter uh, with RBTC bullshit to sitting here talking to you for an hour and a half about Bitcoin just two years later. It's amazing. Um, thank you for joining me. Uh, just let it be like a, a you know, maybe a, a example, I guess, to all the listeners out there that, you know, you just got to keep plugging away, uh, keep reading, keep listening, um, and do what you can to learn. Bitcoin will, uh, you know, pay you back. It's, it incentivizes you to learn about it and to help and to help it grow. Um, and that's one of the amazing, uh, you know, kind of, aspects of its incentive structure it's just it's it's a marvel uh every you know angle that you look at the incentive structure is there to uh help bitcoin grow and help bitcoin help uh humanity i guess for you know i get to get right down to it yeah and uh thanks for joining the bitcoin core cult uh, <laughs> right, sponsored yeah. by blockstream axa uh definitely go get your your stickers and um yeah work for the lizard people I did get my Blockstream sticker uh, with a <laughs> with a lightning node that I set up uh, with the command line like early last year, and it's proudly sitting on my desk. You're um, you're completely brainwashed. You got totally like... brainwashed. Well, actually, today I was a uh, I was in Discord chat with um, Guy Swan of the Crypto Economy podcast, yeah. and he uh, he and I were talking. Actually, we listened to your episode with uh, Stefan Levera and Michael Goldstein. And you guys had kind of joking about the church, like a church of Bitcoin or church of Satoshi. Um, so we bought the, he bought the domain name churchofsatoshi.com. And we just went off for like a good 15 minutes on all of the amazing possibilities of the church of Satoshi, which well, is just going to happen. Yeah. I mean, like what I was saying with the uh, Bill of Rights, if we get the freedom of exercising whatever religion you want, uh, if we get under that umbrella, uh, then 
all Bitcoin-related regulations now have to come under a different level of judicial review called strict scrutiny, which right. would be fantastic for us because now the government would have to like really prove that every law is absolutely necessary and that there's no other way of doing things. So uh, that's very exciting. And <laughs> I, I hope that, I mean, frankly, if, if the weirdos at Scientology can cover religion, right. We exactly. should be able to as well. Yeah, absolutely. And and then, you know, any of the um, education slash evangelism that we do with the Church of Satoshi would be completely tax-free, of course. So I, I think that our Bitcoin gains should also be tax-free, but that might be a harder thing to justify. It might be a harder sell. Yeah. Maybe we'll get there. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, thanks again, Pierre. And I'm looking forward to meeting you soon. Um, hope you have a great weekend. Sure thing. Thanks for having me on. Well, that was fun. I hope you all enjoyed it as well. If you got this far, chances are you like the show. And if that's the case, please take a couple moments to rate the Citizen Bitcoin pod wherever you get your podcasts, if you can. We're just getting going and every review right now counts for like 10 later on. So I'm 10 times more thankful if you can do that for us at this point in time. Thanks to Randy McMillan, Drakeus32, and Jimmy Dell for leaving very nice reviews this past week we really really appreciate it thank you guys uh, and thank you for joining us for this episode with pierre rochard from all over the world bitcoin is truly global even for this little podcast we're building something amazing here everyone and i'm really glad you guys are here all right take care out there bitcoiners <laughs>